Angel Rodriguez. Today's guest is the founder and executive director of Avenues for Justice, a nonprofit that has been working for decades to help disadvantaged youth in New York City avoid harsh criminal penalties and build successful, constructive lives. He'll share insights about his work and his superpower. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show, where we empower you. Angel, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such an honor for us to connect with you. Thank you so much, and good morning, and thanks for the opportunity to be able to communicate the message of uh, what this particular organization, Island for Justice, is doing for the city uh, yeah. for four decades. Well, it, it's important, incredibly important work uh, that you're doing, helping kids, young adults avoid uh, jail and uh, get them kind of on right back into roles in, as contributing citizens rather than uh, in trouble with the law or in jail. So uh, it's, it's incredibly important work. You've been doing this personally for a long time. How long have you been there at Avenues for Justice? I, I happen to be the executive director of the organization and also a co-founder. This organization goes back to the mid-70s when I uh, started this work. I started to look at some of the problems that were happening in our city. Uh, in the 70s, I think uh, everyone knows that this city was pretty poor and burned out, especially our poorest communities. And I come from the Lower East Side, where I'm homegrown, and I have lived there through this duration of this organization because I thought it was super important for me to be with the people that we represent. And we started this organization, we named it Andrew Glover, which is uh, named after a slain police officer who cared about the kids and the mission that we were kind of addressing at, at a time when, again, uh, the Lower East Side, which is what I relate to most, was devastated. Um, people were not coming into that community unless you lived there or there would be serious consequences. There were enormous arrests in our community behind, uh, I don't know if the community goes back to Operation Pressure Point um, and the Rockefeller laws, which impacted uh, the lives of so many people uh, in our poorest communities um, and communities of color, which is where these operations took place, sadly. And as, you, as everyone knows, um, when Rockefeller laws uh, police would come in and take everybody from the children to the wife to the husband who might have been the drug dealer and there was no discretion and it destroyed so many lives. Operation Pressure Point, again, because of the drug issue, these um, the police department take these uh, operations into these poorest communities, which, um, you know, I hope that it's to protect them, but it's also uh, the communities where we know there's a lot of rest can be made. And even acting in concert, you know, our kids, uh, a lot of kids are arrested in the city in what's called acting concert, which means that it, it could be any kid who's hanging out with two other kids who may be up to no good and do something dumb. As a friend, the third kid stays or even the second kid stays, they all, the three of them will get arrested and charged with the same crime, whether it's a robbery, possession of a gun, uh, a drug sale. And that brings too many young people into our system. And that's what um, my, myself and my predecessor, Robert Siegel, responded to. And the kid got arrested and asked us to come to court with him because he was scared. And Robert and I at the time in sneakers and jeans appeared in arraignments 
and in front of the rail, the judge who then says, who are these guys in front of my rail? And the kid explained, he was my, my tutor and my mentor. And we decided to come back with another report on those kids, which created a concept of a serious need. And that created the Andrew Glover Youth Program, uh, focused uh, in community-based programming, which we're big on, and it's our base and potentially our, our source our, uh, that makes this organization work and how we work with not only these young people, but families. And when I say young people, we're focused on kids 13 through 24, um, which is a very serious population that we're engaged with. Um, and, um, and trying to, again, change their lives. Uh, of course, we get involved in these cases from exemption. Sometimes the, the parents will come to us or to one of the counselors and say, a police officer came to my house looking for my child. And we then will contact that officer and create a surrender if we needed to do that. If they're looking for him in an open, what's called 61 police complaint. And then, of course, we appear at the arraignment and communicate to the court that if we can bring these young men to the police to surrender, I think we can bring them back to court, which is the issue of bail. And as you know, bail is very different today than it's ever been. Um, I've been doing this since uh, for the last 40 years easy. And um, I, in the beginning of this organization, we dealt with some of the toughest judges in the system. And as you guys know, every 20 years, there's a big turnover of a lot of people in our system, and many of them are judges. And um, Judge Ruffwax, who was a very powerful judge here, was my mentor, um, but was not the kind of judge that was ready to entertain kids. And that I say that because when I was started this work, um, an incident happened in a city where a 14-year-old put a, uh, his hand in his pocket and told somebody he had a gun to give him his money. The city went outraged. It was a political year. And from that we developed what's called the youth part that prosecutes 13-year-olds for murder, 14 and 15-year-olds as adults. These 14 and 15-year-olds do not go to family court. They get indicted by a adult grand jury, and they would go before any judges. And like I said, Judge Ruffwax and many other judges were not equipped to deal with kids. Uh, think about it. I think that the community that I'm talking to probably has a lot of 14-year-olds at home. So think about a 14, your 14 year old being in front of a judge facing state prison time and a felony conviction. Um, that either you go to trial or you take a plea and anything can happen from that. And, um, so, uh, I mean, if a, uh, Andrew Glover youth program, and I'm going to also tell you that, uh, we are known as, uh, I mean, for justice today behind a branding. Um, but, um, I mean, for justice became very active with Judge Michael Corriero to lobby uh, 30 years ago to create a youth part so that these young people indicted under this law would not just go before any judge. And it took a lot of work going before bar associations and court administrations to get them to understand that these are kids and we need to treat them as kids even though we are indicting them as adults. Um, and um, so that part was created um, and has done amazing things. Uh, as everyone knows, today it's a national part. Every state has a youth part. Uh, every state deals very differently connected to the law. So um, so I've been at this for 40 years, 
in the Lower East Side as a community-based program that enabled us to to focus on the family. So we meet a 17-year-old charged with a robbery or some kind of felony charge. Uh, we, you know, my workers will go to the house. My court advocates will go and make home visits to see where these kids. I always like to see where kids sleeps because it tells me a lot about. And um, and when my counselors go to that home, they find that there are other kids at home that are not doing anything or that should be in school or that have other issues. My staff will get involved because I believe that if you don't take care holistically the whole family, it falls apart. So we engage with the family the best that we can. And the best work that we do is when family engages. There are some kids today, sadly, that have no family that are living in a city on their own through shelters and other means of jumping from place to place. I was able in in the late 70s to take a building away from drug dealers, understanding that I needed a safe space for these kids to be, to take them off the street where they naturally were because I grew up in the projects. I hung out with my friends because my parents could not send me on a vacation. We didn't do vacations. So my time, free time was really downstairs playing around. And around me, there were friends of mine that might have been dealing drugs. that might have been doing the wrong things, but they were my friends. And that's how a lot of kids fall into the system. They talk into this kid when they have a bundle of drugs on them and the cop is watching. And before you know, we're both arrested, now charged with acting in concert. And sadly, some of the police premise is let the system decide and figure it out. When I say the system, I talk about prosecutors traditionally that have to deal with these complaints as they come in, and also judges who have uh, a say uh, when um, they understand the case and see that this other individual perhaps had nothing to do with it. Um, So, um, you know, it's about always trying to adjudicate. We're always trying to, we're working with kids under the age of 18. We know that on a first felony, we can, depending on the case, of course, get them adjudicated. And that is very important, even on misdemeanors, because a lot of our kids um, uh, suffer a lot of these situations, as I call them, early in their lives. And these records, especially today, stay in their records forever. Anybody can press one button and they come up. And you should see the faces of some of these young people who have gone through us, through the system, who have come out on the other side, who have been adjudicated, who are doing the right things, who apply for this great job that they're so happy with. And two weeks later, they do a check and they wind up firing these young people. And then what happens to that young person? What is he going through and processing, thinking about, you know, he's trying to do the right thing and they won't let them. So our counselors are always through a lot of workshops, addressing employment, addressing education. Uh, you know, that's a big to do. Today we do a lot online, uh, which enables us to communicate with a lot of kids. So um, I was able to uh, get that building from these folks. I fought the city for about four years. I somehow maneuvered a $25 a month lease to a abandoned property. And uh, when I wanted to buy it at a fair market value from the city, they were kind of, you know, we don't know if we want to sell it. And I reminded them that I had this lease that I could pay $25 forever. And uh, at the time, Carol Bellamy, who was in office, and Andrew Stein, who are in office, who understood the work that I was doing. And I was one of the first ATIs without knowing that in the city, providing this amazing service that they understood. 
and they helped me. Um, uh, I was able to buy this building very inexpensively and through some of our friends and a board, I was able to gut the building, pay for it, gut it, and have kids in it in six months. And that building has been, if you go there today, it stands as the day that I built it because generations have gone through that building and they take care of it. Uh, it it's amazing and, and you have to see it to believe it. Yeah. Um, we also, uh, about um, in 1999, uh, there was a need because uh, Harlem, which was a community in East Harlem that was also feeding a lot of people into the system. And as you guys know, any case that happens in Manhattan goes into uh, Manhattan's courts. And again, we're like different cities. Thing happens in the Bronx, goes to the Bronx. So um, so we, um, I uh, expanded and replicated the program in Harlem. And I, I um, have a place in Harlem, another center in Harlem. That center we rent, which is not easy, but it's, I, we developed it into a beautiful place for kids to come in and be safe with a lot of computers and, and a lot of counseling and a lot of workshops, food, and again, a safe space for a kid to come and spend time in um, without you know, having to be in danger, uh, sadly, in a city. We're always trying to get kids back into education, uh, which is not easy. Uh, a lot of our kids, you know, there's a lot of special education, there's a lot of IPs and issues that, you know, that bring our kids down. Uh, you know, I dealt with an issue just yesterday with a young man who went to school uh, with an instrument that he took away from a seven-year-old. His seven, he's walking his seven-year-old brother to school. And uh, he noticed that he had this tool on him. And this tool can be opened up into like a little knife and different things. It's a utility tool. So he took it from the kid, put it in his pocket, got him to school, and then went to school with the tool in his pocket. He went to the nurse, and the nurse is asking, what do you have in your pocket? The kid says, nothing. So, of course, they, it's, it's bulging. Something is there. So they called security. And before you know it, they got this kid um, now suspended, put out of school, uh, I get to talk to the principal, and as it turns out, at first they called it one of the top weapons, and I go, top weapon is a loaded gun. This is a utility tool. But yeah. um, at the end of the day, it was poor judgment from the young man, but uh, I'm happy to say that the school understood that and um, uh, are willing to, uh, again, recover the situation and the suspension. And But that's the work. So my counselors went to meet with the principal, and that also leads to us doing representation for this principal, hopefully, uh, because they have a lot of young people that are caught up in crisis. And I, I will tell you why we go to those schools, not just to deal with the young man or young woman that may have a legal matter, but we do prevention. So that um, when you walk into our centers, you'll see 20 kids and potentially 15 of them will have a court matter and a court related and the other five are not. And they will participate in every activity. No one knows who's who and they participate in the same services. So because we believe that prevention in this uh, population and this age is very important. So and it's we, and it's pretty effective, right? I, your your data shows that uh, the the young people you work with uh, rarely end up in trouble again, right? That's correct, um, and and that's attributed to the counselors and the community based aspect of this organization. And um, so, um, yeah, we've been able to once kids get involved with us and understand the process, they make efforts to stay out of the system. 
uh, and in preventive kids don't go into the system. That's what's really great. And there's a lot of work from the counselors on those kids, uh, just as there's a lot of work done with the offenders from a different perspective, because um, there's a lot yeah. more responsibility and duties and different things. So we have kids who, you know, we have employed, they could be in school. We have a lot of kids in treatment, drug programs. Um, we're dealing with mental health. Uh, we don't do mental health, but it is an issue that sure. almost impacts every single case um, that we work on from different perspectives, some more than and you've others. Done, you've helped thousands and thousands of kids over the years. You've got hundreds in the program right now, right? I've been fortunate, uh, I say, to, uh, to, be, to be in a position to touch the lives of so many kids and to, and, 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 and to have an input in the criminal justice system. Uh, this organization is rooted here so that judges know who we are, prosecutors know who we are, the DA knows who we are. Uh, I was involved with the memo for the DA uh, addressing juveniles because, again, behind the concept that these kids, uh, these young 14 and 15-year-olds, even 16-year-olds would be better served in family court uh, where they have services. Then a youth part who has no services for them other than the ATI programs like ours, I mean, for justice and others who come in to provide service um, at a point where sometimes, you know, it could be too late. Uh, with some of these kids. So so that prevention is crucial. We work with about 400 kids a year uh, coming on and coming off, um, many under supervision, and many with open matters and, and a lot of prevention. And of course, you know, um, uh, the, um, the issue of COVID uh, impacted criminal justice still is and has, and, and our communities. And so, um, you know, bringing people back and getting people back into a, a normal routine. It's something that we're doing now, trying to, again, get these young people to start committing and to start, you know, realizing that our centers are open and that they can't come in. And of course, we are trying to um, address COVID with them and protect them the best way that we can. Yeah, I, I just had a case in court that I was a little bit concerned because the DA was taking a position that a kid to go into a program had to be vaccinated. And I'm like, wait a minute, uh, this is not an issue of law. And, uh, you know, you can't put somebody in jail because he refuses to vaccinate. Not that he was going to jail. And as it turned out, it was going into a, well, I want to make sure that the referral program that he went into would accept the kid without a vaccination in order to complete a particular um, a package that uh, we're working on this case where it's conditional. Um, where the kid at the end would be adjudicated if he complies and completes. And so far, he's doing 100%. And, you know, today the mother said to me, I can't believe that a prosecutor in New York was so nice. So I was huddling in the hallway <laughs> and I was with the attorney. I was with uh, a social worker from, from the DA's office and the prosecutor uh, who was, because we were saying, we're not ready to today for this contract because we believe that there's a problem here legally. And the problem was that this kid is a juvenile. Therefore, the time that he would do upon a mess up, let's say, on his contract would be different than what they put on for an adult. Yeah. So that's how thorough we like to be. And that differs us from many other ATIs. And there are others in the city, large ones yeah. and small ones. Uh, and what differs us is that we are very much involved, not just in providing the service for the kid, but I'm, I'm in the conversations with the negotiations 
of how this could look and what this kid needs to do to earn his probation and a non-jail sentence because we believe that service will always be better than sales. And we're spending a half a million dollars a person at Rikers Island for one year, which is a little bit outrageous uh, given you know, that we don't have money to do anything else, though we are building jails. Um, we, that same kid that would be in Rikers Island for one year or in some state prison lost, we can service and, and make this kid productive for $5,700. That's yeah. the difference um, that I think- A hundredfold. Hopefully can understand the kind of money that we're spending and the kind of services that we're not given. Even at state prisons, even though today there are some that are trying to educate, which I think is the way to go, uh, not punishment, not to put kids in solitary confinement, but to provide education so that when they come out, they can live better lives and, yeah. and help their families because all these young people have families. Uh, and as you well know, and the community knows that, you know, our prisons uh, can be anywhere from an hour and a half away to eight hours. So think about a poor young person that lives with a grandmother who they'll never see him because yeah. no way can she afford or no way can she even make that trip. Yeah, so right. um, and, and that impacts how that person might behave when he comes back. And that's an issue of concern. So. Again, um, so I, Devin, have been focused through the years, and a lot of people have tried to divert me, but I stayed focused on what I think is super important and crucial to, to address kids coming into the system, being arrested, keeping them from being arrested sometimes um, because you're there. Uh, and nice. if they are arrested, to make sure that they're released to make sure now that the system starts to deal with them fairly. If they're innocent, then I, you know, I, we go to trial. I don't do a lot of trials. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sadly, because our children, our young people are afraid of the system. They believe that the system is not fair to them and they don't trust it to the degree. And that's part of what we do is sensitizing these young people that the system does what they need to do sometimes, but they're not out here just to get you. And I try to communicate that message. I, you know, when I was, like I said, hold this money with this family, the parents said, I can't believe how that a prosecutor in New York would be that nice. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Who's here. Yeah. You've really accomplished a lot. Uh, You've helped thousands of kids. Uh, Some of them, I'm sure their lives have really literally been saved by the work that you're doing. Certainly, uh, years and years, thousands of years of prison time has been avoided because of the work that you've been doing. What do you see as your superpower? Um, I I um, I, uh, I don't look at it as a super superpower. I look at it as a like I, I said earlier that I am I, I've been blessed because I've been able to do things for people that. It could not be done, I don't think, by anybody else, uh, given the time and what was going on. Uh, I can't begin to tell you stories uh, of the role that we play from, you know, a call from a police officer 
to help because they tracked down a stolen bedroom set into the community to a family that's a good family, but they bought stolen property. So my job was to go in and talk to these people and say, look, guys, you made a mistake and a property has to be given up. And uh, from, again, keeping young people from that been facing so much jail and, um, uh, and, and we're able to prove because here, you know, there's the proof of the pudding when a kid is charged with a crime, it takes a long time. Uh, and it may be a good kid who will never be involved in that again, but he is held to a standard that is tough. Um, and I understand that. So my power is to be in the midst of all that and to create a team that uh, that has the power uh, to communicate with the community, with the police department, with the DA's office, with judges, uh, and anybody in between. Um, and as you know, there are a lot of players in all that we do, including, you know, I don't do this alone and I have a great board of directors that, you know, help fund this organization. I started out always in the red with $20,000. And today we are a $2 million organization, which is kind of scary because I have to raise it every year privately. Yeah, I, yeah. I, have no, I have not sold this program to the government. The government, I think, uh, who's needed a lot of help has finally recognized uh, Abinifid Justice and who we are and the work that we've been doing. Uh, which has been a great thing that has led to some funding through the mayor's office and some other means. Yeah, but yeah. my funding, 90% of my funding is private through foundations, yeah. and corporations and our friends and galas that we have and golf tournaments that I put together <laughs> and the friend uh, who great. understands what we're doing. And, and together we put together a budget that we spend on his kids. Basically, yeah. let's come, you know, let's, let's come back to the, uh, your superpower for a minute. Uh, you talked about your ability to build and organize a team. And uh, that that is a great superpower and your ability to communicate. Can you think of a time when you used your team to have a successful outcome, a specific instance, maybe a specific young man or young woman that you supported through a difficult time where that ability to lead a team in the midst of a challenging situation came into play. Can you think of an example? Sure, there are many. Um, but I will share the story of Luis Concepcion, who's a young man that came to me at 16 years old, charged with a mugging of somebody in the Lower East Side. No record prior to that, but um, he was involved in dealing drugs. He, he lived with some druggy parents that he wasn't really happy with. Uh, never had a relationship that led to kind of what happened to this kid. So this young man gets arrested and charged with this crime. I get a phone call uh, after he was arrested and uh, intervened and got him released and uh, took him on um, under my supervision for a, a while. It was a serious case where he yoked somebody from the back and took some money. So um, he was facing seven years in prison. Uh, indicted in front of a real tough judge. And uh, in time, this kid started kind of coming around at my center. He lived at my center at that point, as many do. And um, I saw this kid take initiative off the street, um, worked really hard in education, was able to get his high school diploma while the case was pending. We then entered a plea. I convinced the judge that obviously wasn't a case we would go to trial on. 
So I wanted to work out a plea. In those days, we're talking 25 years ago, um, in those days, it was prison mostly on these kind of charges, and that's what they wanted. I was dealing with a judge who knew my work and knew what I was doing, um, um, and um, Judge Felicia Shea, who was an amazing judge. So this judge witnessed, uh, so I appear in court every 20 or 25 days or every 30 days with this kid with a letter informing the court to the point that they said, all right, Angel, uh, we'll take a plea. We'll allow a plea to be entered, but it's not conditional. This plea, maybe he can stay out of jail, maybe not. We'll assess it as we go. So not having a lot of choices, and I've taken a lot of those kind of pleas, uh, and I understood exactly where this kid went, and he did too. So we took this plea, and we deferred it. It was a year later when he finally uh, got to the other side, and the judge, because he was under the age of 18, my negotiations was with the Supreme Court judge, not the prosecutor. And the judge turned to me and said, look, Angel, I've seen the transition of this kid in front of me, so I will certainly allow the plea. And if he does the right things for the next uh, year, I will adjudicate him a youthful offender and he'll have no criminal record. And that's what happened. So this kid gets adjudicated. Um, he already has, <laughs> in, in my community, a two-year-old child with him, with no mother, a little girl. So he says to me at a point, once he's on probation, um, like maybe eight months into probation, that he wanted to maybe go into the armed forces and help his kid. So I go, kid, go take the test. He went to the Marines and took this, and the Marine recruiter called me. He said, Angel, I understand you're working with this kid. He's under your supervision. He's court high. I want him. He can, I want him. So I said, are you willing to come to court and talk to the judge? Because uh, he's on probation. That takes me into a whole different perspective. So, so the guy said, I can't really come to court. So I now go to probation and say, look, guys, this is the story. You guys know how long this has happened. You know where this kid has been. I need his probation to be terminated so he could be inducted into the Marine Corps. Probation said, Angel, we respect your work, but it's a violent crime. It's too soon. We can't do it. So, of course, in how I work with my superpowers, I go directly to the judge that sentenced the boy, and I stand in front of her rail. She goes, Angel, can I help you? Come on up to the bench. I go up to the bench, and I put it on her plate. She goes, again, Angel, I saw this kid transition in front of me. Let me do a checkup on him. And if it's correct, I'll do it. Within two weeks, this young man's probation was terminated. And this kid was inducted into the Marine Corps. Uh, I went to Quantico, Virginia to put honors on him upon his request because his dad wasn't connected to him. I will tell you all that this kid went into the Marine Corps to do four years. He did 20. He fought for this country. He went to Iraq four times. One of the biggest issues with this boy, I call him a boy, uh, with this young man who's 42 today, was that with the YO, he wasn't sure that he could qualify to become an officer of the military. And so we had that conversation. And I said, kid, you've been a Marine for four years. You can bodyguard the president. Apply. He did. And to be very honest, he was discriminated against and did not make it. And we had another discussion. Do I challenge it and reapply? We agreed that he should, and he became a captain. So the story is that this young man today, one of my proudest moments was to go to to go out west um, to his 
ceremony of retirement where his flag was folded and presented to his wife. He came very close to having that same flag put over his his, uh, his uh, box, I hate to say, because he was in Iraq four times as a captain and um, yeah. he had some very serious calls. So that's the kind of work. And there are many scenarios of that kind that we have on kids like this who have gone that extra yard, not only took that opportunity for themselves, but in this case, this kid has protected this country in ways yeah. that today he's retired. I would also tell you that the kind of work that we do, I was in contact with this kid for all those four years weekly, and I was in contact with the same young man for 20 years weekly, including when he was Iraq, he would yeah. call me on his iPhone. And <laughs> That's great. And today he's been retired now three years, and he's still in contact with me every week. He just started a firm trying to help other, uh, a financial firm, trying to help other, uh, other uh, military young people that come out lost with nothing. Yeah. So that's an amazing, so those are, that's one scenario. It's a great, great story. Um, that kind that's- of. That's fantastic. I want you what you're talking about in terms of building a team uh, and collaborating in the community. You know, you have an ability to build a, a team-like relationship with people who might otherwise be seen as adversaries. Maybe with district attorneys and prosecutors, even the judge might be viewed as someone who's adversarial to you. Uh, and of course, you have the people who are working on your team more directly, the other advisors and the people that you know are social workers or whatever titles you may give them. But it, it seems to me that part of your ability is to uh, collaborate across these uh, uh, boundaries uh, that are traditionally adversarial. Tell us how you would coach someone to do the same thing, to build those bridges across adversarial modes? Well, you know, this organization um, is a model program. It started out as that, a small community base. And like I said, I expanded to Harlem. And and I actually have taken a mission uh, after that to take on Brooklyn and the Bronx. And we are literally... Uh, representing young people in those barrels as well today, which is something very different. Of course, I don't have a base there yet because that requires a very serious funding perspective that I need to put in place, which is something else. Um, but um, but um, so this is a model that's out there for anybody. As a matter of fact, it's been, I, of course, I have the model and um, it's been copywritten so that I could take it into other cities and other communities that may be interested in doing something like this. And it's about locating leaders and people who are seriously interested, because you have to be interested in criminal justice. It's not an easy place to be, that easy work, as you say. Uh, you know, negotiating with prosecutors who have one mentality. Some judges too, and I, I'm happy to say that through the years that we've been here, we've been able to open up the minds of some of these prosecutors to look at cases differently. Even defense counsel, I remember once working with this older gentleman who said to me, you know, Angel, before I worked with you, I never took a plea on a case. I either went to trial or took a plea, went to jail. I never put a program in place. And, you know, I'm 75 years old and I feel like I'm learning something today. So, again, that's the difference. And those are the, the issues that go on in our system. So, of course, 
I have an office in the criminal justice system at 100th Street, which gives us a connection and easier for my, what I call court advocates, to walk into courtrooms, to walk into the DA's office, to walk to the Department of Probation to figure out what's going on or to deal with a referral. Everybody refers from different sites. Even prosecutors refer kids to us these days, which is traditionally not heard of, yeah. um, which means that I give credit to the DA's office in that they're making some changes. And I'm very pleased and happy that you know they're making some changes in our city, uh, certainly that are very useful. I think that uh, sealing the records for marijuana, it's a big deal. I had a young man who um, went to college, got himself a degree in a, uh, and was able to get a job on Wall Street. Of course, he was a black young man. And of course, you know, the fact that we're on Wall Street, the fact that we have a degree doesn't change who we are. And Sally, this kid went now to the girlfriend's house to find that there was a kid there in our bed. And that led to a situation where he didn't deal with the kid, but he took our phone because you know how kids are. I want to see what's in your phone. She calls the cops, gets him arrested. This kid lost a job on Wall Street behind that. Of course, we were able to get his case sealed and taken care of, but the job was lost. He today has another job on Wall Street, which we're pleased but these are the issues that our young people suffer, and our counselors are very much on top of that. Like I said, I look yeah. for leaders, and I try to find leaders. And I've always said to people, many people who we engage, uh, I get involved in a case, and a lot of different people pop up sometimes. And sometimes our people from other organizations who have an interest and are interested in criminal justice and what we do and how we flow through a courtroom. Uh, and again, my funders, if they want to know and see what I do, I bring them to a courtroom. You want to know why this judge is giving sure. me an opportunity with the kid? Ask the judge. He will tell you. And and for them to see the kind of care and concern and how the counselors are super important because they're on the record on every case. Yeah. And what differs us from a lot of other programs is that, you know, it's not just a free ride. I've put kids back in jail when things were out of control on cases that I was committed. And of course, yeah. I might have gotten them back out later again uh, once they understand. And, <laughs> right. And that's super important. A little important. new perspective. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I don't, again, and that was a premise that I've been, that I kind of used and was involved through the years. It's not one that I use today because I do not believe that Rock is Island is a safe place for any kid to go. Right, right. So that today cannot exist, and and sad. Yeah. Uh, and some of our detention centers, which are also in jeopardy, and yeah. I don't need to tell the public what's happening in terms of Rikers and um and our kids and right. the kind of money that we're now spending on building community jails, which is another dialogue. Well, Angel, I know you've got an extremely busy day and uh, we can't keep you here all day, but I'm incredibly grateful that you have taken the time to be with us today. Uh, and uh, I'll be sure to put uh, some uh, links in the show notes in the article I write uh, so that people can track you down and connect with you. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today and we wish you every success in the great work you're doing to help so many young people. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I hope the public, um, you know, looks at these pieces. And again, it's not just about us, but there are a lot of organizations that are doing good work and our young people in our city need support in different ways. All righty, let's do some good. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.